It's funny, there are founders that like can see the world 10, 20, 30 years out or have this like really potent personal vision that they spend a lifetime kind of imposing on the universe. Uh, we did not fit in that category. This is Decoding Digital, and I'm your host, Daniel Sachs. Every episode, we hear from someone who is working to build something new in the digital economy. Each guest has a unique perspective to share, and together we work to understand or decode a trend that is shaping our digital world. Ten years ago, a new company called WePay decided to make a big statement about one of its big competitors, PayPal. The WePay team froze hundreds of dollar bills into 600 pounds of ice and dropped it in front of the Moscone Center in San Francisco, where PayPal was hosting its developer conference. A message inside the ice read, PayPal freezes your accounts, unfreeze your money. The stunt was the brainchild of our guest for today's show, Rich Aberman. Rich co-founded WePay in 2008 at the height of the Great Recession and the early days of peer-to-peer payments. Since then, it has become one of the leading online payment platforms and was acquired by J.P. Morgan Chase for over $400 million in 2017. Today, Rich joins us to share his unique point of view on fintech and why in established industries like banking, working with a traditional company to innovate from the inside out is often the best strategy. Let's decode. Rich, great to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. For sure. So let's start at the beginning. You co-founded WePay in 2008, shortly after you graduated from college. How did you know at such a young age that WePay was the right business idea for you to pursue? You know, it's funny. We There was probably multiple times throughout college and after where, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night and you'd be like, this is the million dollar idea. And you get super excited by it. And, you know, you spend hours kind of drawing wireframes of some target state of what this thing's going to look like once you build it all. And, you tell all your friends about it and you get super excited by it. And then, you know, a couple of weeks and months go by and you get distracted by life and those ideas kind of wither on the vine and, and you move on as like the uninformed optimism of like a new idea gets replaced by informed pessimism of all the reasons it's not going to work. Uh, and all the reasons why it doesn't make sense to go embark on a journey to, to go build this thing. I don't think the original idea for WePay honestly was any different than in any of those ideas. It was a relatively superficial idea at the time it seemed super profound in retrospect it was uh you know almost obvious and i think fairly common a lot of people were building apps to make it easy for friends to send and receive money and, and kind of manage shared expenses but the timing was just right so i was on my way to law school my co-founder was my college roommate just got off a pretty gruesome year as an investment banker and i think we were both at these inflection points in our lives and our careers where it just lent itself to placing a big bet and, you know, going out on our own, just trying something out. And this idea that we were super excited about at the time was the catalyst to make that happen. But in retrospect, it really wasn't the idea itself that kind of allowed us to eventually build, by some measures, a successful company. It was a willingness to kind of learn from what was working and what wasn't, embrace the need to change and kind of evolve and iterate until we found something that really hit a sweet spot. It's funny, there are founders that like can see the world 10, 20, 30 years out or have this like really potent personal vision that they spend a lifetime kind of imposing on the universe. Uh, we did not fit in that category. You know, I don't think that we were coming from a place of 
expertise or insight or you know strong kind of inherent vision. I think we had a natural starting point building a simple app to kind of scratch our own itch as young people that were constantly sending and receiving money from each other. Um, and that's where we started. And we kind of burned the bridges, burned the ships, didn't give ourselves any other option besides to find some way to make this thing work. And a big part of making it work was to change what it was that we were actually working on. What data points did you get to realize that you needed to change to what you do today? I think one of the things we did right um, is that we never really did a hard pivot where we like dropped this thing and started working on this thing. It was always this, you know, kind of bending our path and, and kind of like heat seeking missile, trying to find the right answer. And we were able to parlay some modicum of success and some learnings that we had into the ability to keep going and get more runway. I think the most kind of stark way of putting that is we always raised venture capital on a consistent narrative, right? It was always like, hey, like, this is what we were doing and this is what we're going to continue to do, but we're going to evolve and change slightly given this new opportunity that we've identified and given these learnings that we've had. Um, and so we, we've never had to go to like a new round of investors and say, hey, we raised a bunch of money already, we burned through that stuff, but give us more and we're going to do something totally new. We were able to kind of show it more as like a, a, a natural arc. But if you go through various, I think, discrete points in our history, there were moments of insights that really drove some real change. So I'll give you a couple of examples. The first one is probably the most meaningful. You know, we started the company to build a more social mobile way to send and receive money for shared expenses. So, you know, people were now getting smartphones for the first time. There was this thing called an app store. Facebook had opened up its developer platform so you could, you know, tap into a social graph to kind of make connections between people. Um, and we said, okay, there's these new technologies, definitely an opportunity for us to build, build a kind of peer to peer, uh, payment system. And we spent a year in Boston trying to raise money on that idea. Two first time entrepreneurs talking about group expenses in the worst recession since the great depression on the East coast. So like could not have the deck more stacked against us. The kind of first breakthrough or any prog meaningful progress we were able to make was getting accepted to Y Combinator, which was really the first time that we had some external validation that we you know, were the right kinds of people working on the right kinds of thing. And that brought us out to the West Coast to start building this thing. And I remember kind of the first day to have the, the Y Combinator partners and Paul Graham does his, does his shtick and he was saying, for the next three months, you're doing two things. You're either building a product or you're selling it and not necessarily in that order. So who out here is a developer and like 99.9% .9 of people that were part of Y Combinator raised their hand. And he's like, all right, who's not a developer? And I was like the lone hand that went up in the back of the room. He's like, great, you're selling the product. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I guess that's what I got to do and not necessarily wait until the product is built. And so while my co-founder Bill um, and our first early employees with us for a long time, Eric Stern, were like day and night writing code to kind of build the first version of our app, it was my responsibility to go out there and build a network of people um, that were, were aware of it, that were excited about it, felt like they had a vested interest in our success. Um, had validated that the functionality that we were building was going to work for their use case. So then when we finally did launch this thing, it would be in the hands of the community of people that were willingly embracing it and not into like, you know, the, the ether. And I remember sitting there on like day one, working on this thing, you know, Bill and Eric are sitting there like writing code and kind of cranking this thing out. And I was like, great time to go acquire users. How does one do that? And you know, it's, it's a humbling experience because it's like, all right, if this is just a peer to peer app, we don't have any, we don't have any brand equity. We don't have a ton of money to pay for customer acquisition. It's not like people were searching, you know, how to send my friends money for, you know, pizza or pay them back for a trip. It wasn't like there was like 
explicit demand that you could tap into and target with AdWords or, or content. So we didn't really know where, know where to go. And what I ended up doing was saying, okay, well, what's a persistent use case with an identified pain point? And it was, okay, there's groups and organizations and associations that have this ongoing need to accept dues from their members. And it was just a use case that we were able to identify and individuals that we were able to explicitly target based on you know, being a treasurer or the president of some local organization. And naturally the place that we looked was, okay, we just got out of university. We know that like there's all these campus clubs and groups. And so we started targeting that. So before we even built the product, we ended up kind of quote unquote pivoting from a fairly lightweight, simple, pure peer-to-peer payments platform to building a tool set for persistent groups and organizations that were collecting dues from their members. And what drove that was an insight that it's just hard to build a network from scratch when the value that you're offering is fairly thin and the pain point is super ephemeral. So that insight of trying to sell the product before we even built it ended up affecting what we were actually building. We ended up building the first version being more of a group management, expense management tool for quasi-formal groups and organizations, particularly those that are based in, in universities. That ended up having its own problems and we could talk about why we pivoted away from that. But I think that's an example where, you know, it wasn't a hard pivot where we stopped building the ability to send and receive money, but it was a modification of that initial vision to, you know, support what we thought was a more effective go-to-market strategy. And in those early days, did you look at the competition a lot? There's two mistakes you can make. It's like not looking at the competition at all and being totally ignorant, but then just focusing entirely on the competition and trying to play catch up and run the same race, plus resources. We definitely made the formal mistake. You know, it's like, we have this incredible idea that, you know, we're going to, we're going to make it easy to like split the check at dinner. And it's like, every week I get another email from an entrepreneur that's like building the same thing. It's like, everyone feels that pain point. Um, and yet everyone feels it, but how many of us have ever gone to the app store and like tried to actively look for a solution to make that easier, right? It's like a consistent pain point, but it's so thin and so ephemeral that like even the cost of downloading an application for free to solve it, no one's, no one's willing to do. So I, I think like in the early days, if we would have done a real gut check and like looked at the competition, we'd say, there are people out there that kind of do this anyways. This is pre, pre Venmo. We were kind of, they were contemporaries of ours, but certainly PayPal was doing it. There were apps that were built on top of PayPal that kind of added value to the use case of group expenses. Why weren't uh, more companies doing it? Because it wasn't a huge market and it was tough to kind of acquire customers with that being the hook that we're going to make it easy to kind of share expenses for, for group activities. So we were pretty ignorant, I think, of the, the landscape. One of the things that's changed personally over the, over the past, call it 10 years plus, is, you know, when we started out, our frame of reference and our context was blind and biased enthusiasm about an idea. And that idea was informed by like personal perspective and personal pain point. And so the sophistication with which we were able to think about the industry that we were in, the time horizon on which we were able to think about what we were doing and why was all super limited. And the only thing that's changed is that we just spent a lot more time in this industry and we've gained a real knowledge and expertise around how it's evolving, who the players are, where the pockets of opportunity are, the way it's going to fundamentally change on a five, 10, 15 year time horizon, what customers actually need and want and are willing to pay for. Um, so much, much kind of different view of the universe than, than, than what we had in, in the early days. 
How did the idea evolve to what it is today and to what you know, ultimately led to the acquisition by JP Morgan? I hate, hate the word pivot because it didn't feel like a pivot at the time, but the first evolution of the product based on when we were building it in the, you know, the confines of, of, of Y Combinator, which is a, a you know, early, early stage micro venture fund. The second one was, you know, we built this tool to make it easy for clubs and associations to collect money or dues from their members. And what we realized was different types of organizations had a different definition of what it meant or how, how they wanted to collect money from their members. So some of them were selling registration. So, you know, the, the functional need there was a form builder to build a registration experience and sell a ticket or a confirmation at the end. Others wanted to send invoices. Others wanted to put up a page that members or supporters can just make donations of any amount. You know, others wanted to sell membership packages. You know, you get package A or package B or package C, which look a lot like an e-commerce site, you know, a kind of simple storefront. And so we ended up building a whole bunch of what I would call thin apps um, for all those different use cases. Now you can use them all in any combination, uh, but they were all kind of these discrete use cases or applications. We had like a really simple registration slash you know, ticket sale product. We had a really thin invoicing product. We had a really thin store building product. And all of those were ultimately built on top of our underlying payment infrastructure. And the argument that we were making at the time was, you know, sure, you can use Eventbrite for tickets or you can use FreshBooks for invoicing or big commerce or Shopify for a storefront. But all of those guys, at least at that point, were just pure play software companies. And so if part of your need was to accept payments, you had to go get a relationship with PayPal or some other merchant provider and then connect the two. And we were saying, well, we're better because we have a fully integrated solution where it's both software and payments that work better together. You don't need to kind of keep them together. And there's cost benefits, there's experiential benefits there. I think all else being equal, that was probably right. Um, the problem was all else wasn't equal because we were spending all of our time building for 15 different apps with 15 different use cases and the underlying payment infrastructure underneath. What all FreshBooks was thinking about was how to build the best possible accounting and invoicing solution. You know, all EventBrite or WebConnect was thinking about was how to build the best possible, um, you know, event management and ticket selling solution. All GoFundMe was thinking about was how to build the best possible donation tool with the best viral loop where they can convert campaign organizers or, you know, convert donors into campaign organizers. And so sure, like, would any one of them want a more integrated payment experience? Yeah, that would be helpful, but would they give that up in order to have the best possible event management platform out there? No brainer. So we had a good solution for everybody, but not the best solution for anybody. The insight and got to give credit where credit's due. The, the founders of GoFundMe, who at that time were like two guys in a garage, called me on my cell phone. Uh, we at that point were three or four folks in a garage. And they said, hey, you know, we noticed that you guys have this donation tool like we do. But unlike ours, which is built on top of PayPal with kind of a kludgy handshake between the two, you guys have your own native proprietary payment solution as part of your donation product. How did you do it? And, you know, being reasonable people and like friendly parts of the entrepreneurial community, we said, here's the playbook. You know, we work with this bank, we built this, this, this is the kind of risk regulatory and operational things you should be worried about. And they said, great. Sounds awesome. Why don't you guys just rip off your shit 
and donation product, <laughs> which is far inferior to the one that GoFundMe was able to build, and just expose those APIs to your payment infrastructure, you guys seem to have done a really good job there. Um, and uh, we've done a really good job on the donation side. So we'll fuel customer acquisition. We'll optimize the use case to the nth degree for you know donations specifically. And you guys will get the benefit of all that volume if you just maintain an infrastructure that shields them from the risk, regulatory, operational, technical aspects of quote unquote being in the payments business. So they kind of came to us and asked for it. We had um, an intern at the time as a side project build an API. And that was the API that GoFundMe picked up and ended up driving their business. So for them, they were some of the best product people, both engineers, but like definitely product people at their core that I had ever met. And they were just absolutely scientific about their viral coefficient. And so for them, the difference between, you know, a viral coefficient of 1.1 and 0.9 is the difference between a company that transformed the giving on the internet and a company we never heard of. Right. So like they were obsessed with how do they complete that viral loop. And their two biggest points of drop off were an organizer setting up a campaign and enabling payments, because at that point it required them to go off site to PayPal, set up a merchant account, come back and plug in their credentials. And on the donation piece, donors dropping off during checkout. And so they're like, how do we fix the payments problem? But we don't want to build a payments company. And that was kind of the birth of payments infrastructure as a service. We would allow them to control the front end and we would manage the kind of back office complexities of, of facilitating payments as part of the core, you know, core component of their product offering. At that point, we still had not went all in on that strategy. We we're like, okay, there's this GoFundMe thing. Those guys seem to be taking off, but how big is that market really? And I think the final epiphany was 10, 15, 20 years ago, if you were a small business that wanted to accept credit card payments, you would go into a retail bank and you'd open up a merchant account, which would feel very similar to open up a bank account. Then PayPal basically took that experience and they put it on the internet. But if you wanted a merchant account, you'd go to PayPal, you fill out their application and you'd get set up there. Um, the epiphany was just like nonprofit organizers were no longer getting merchant accounts. They were just signing up for GoFundMe or Classy um, or all these other kind of online tools built specifically for that use case. Small businesses were getting accounting and invoicing software or they were getting restaurant management software, point of sale systems, or online retailers were selling on marketplaces or building online stores through a big commerce or a Shopify. And payments was no longer a separate product that was being sold by a payments company. It was a feature of these broader software solutions that not just campaign organizers and GoFundMe were using, but small businesses were using as well. And so we said, could we do what we've done with GoFundMe for restaurant point of sale systems or accounting and invoicing systems or shopping cart software. And once we started to prove that out, we decided that was where the market was going. Um, and that we had an opportunity to be really disruptive there, be early movers. Stripe was getting a lot of momentum in that space. So I think if we would have just realized it earlier, we would have been in a different position competitively. And I remember the day that we went to our board and said, hey, we're going to retire our what we call direct business, which was us going out and building our own acquisition channels with our own proprietary applications in favor of this integrated channel business, which at that point um, was a minority of our revenue. We had more business in our direct business. We had a brand name, WePay, that was built for this direct business. We had an organization and how we did support and sales that was built for this direct business. But we said, we're gonna bet the farm. Like we're confident that in this business that we started to build years ago, our direct business, we can 
continue to grind out value and we can grow this thing, but we're never going to create, you know, an inflection point where this thing just shoots to the moon. And we're never going to be able to disrupt or transform the industry in a way that we think we have an opportunity to now. And so that was probably the biggest moment where we said, we have this thing, which is still incipient, but we're looking around the corner a little bit. And we think that's the thing that we want to do. And we made the decision. We retired, you know, the business that we had spent the previous five or six years building. And we went all in on uh, our integrated kind of channel business driven by our API. And what were some of the lessons learned in the technical architecture that you built and essentially the API availability and, and enabling an open ecosystem? So my co-founder, Bill, our CEO, was a you know, technologist by training and I think by DNA. I, I was not. I was more of like a tinkerer and problem solver. But neither one of us had worked in a, like a large scale professional software development shop before. And I mean, there were a ton of mistakes that, 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 that we made uh, early on. I mean, things as simple as like, it took us a long time to have a, you know, developer tools team, like a, a team of people whose sole responsibility it is to make our other developers more productive and more consistent. And so I don't think we got as much leverage of the early, I don't think we were able to ship products quickly during the early days as, as we could have. Our code base itself early on was super monolithic. Uh, and it probably made sense to be because we honestly didn't know what we were building. So we just kept building shit, shit um, until we found something that worked. Um, but then, you know, you end up with a monolithic code base with a massive amount of technical debt. And then you have to do your replatforming once you have the conviction and confidence that you're on the right path and that it's worth making the investment to make something a little bit more scalable and extensible. Even the program languages we used and, and the frameworks we used, there weren't thoughtful decisions that went into that in the early days. It was like, this is what we're most familiar with and this is what our friends use. And you, you can guess based on 2008, what an unsophisticated developer would, what, what technology stack would be built on. So I, I mean, massive amounts of technical learnings. And honestly, we never, we never solved those problems ourselves as founders. What we eventually did is we brought in um, an engineering leadership team that was far more experienced and competent than we were. And they, they uh, from the ground up, rebuilt the organization in terms of the talent, totally changed our software development lifecycle, all kind of processes and procedures changed the technology stack that we were on, tore down the monolith and rebuilt it in microservices. Uh, that journey is never going to be over, right? Because if we ever have a perfect code base, it means by definition that we're not pushing hard enough in, in terms of shipping product. But I think the, the pendulum has definitely swung in the direction of being a little bit more of a mature technology organization than we were for the first five or six years of our, of our lives. I think there's probably uh, competitors out there, some well-known, some, some fairly nascent that have different DNA from the beginning and will and have and will benefit from that. You know, they'll have a cleaner code base with a more rational development org structure on day one, and that will allow them to iterate ship product faster than I think we were in the early days. But, you know, we, we were humble, and I think we recognized that, uh, and we made the changes that we need to when we had to. So obviously there's been a dramatic disruption in the uh, payments infrastructure with digital transformation, um, you know, a lot because of what you've done and, and your partners. Where are we on that journey and where do you think this goes 10 years out? Yeah, it's crazy. 10 years ago, if you said you were starting a payments company, people would have been like, huh, cool. Uh, and now it's like, you know, FinTech and, and payments are, you know, one of the kind of hottest arenas out there. And I think that's largely because that's, uh, two things. One is people are recognizing that payments is the, the on-ramp or the tip of the spear for a broader financial services transformation. And I think the second is that just generally the, the incumbents within kind of retail financial services 
the, the world is changing very dramatically. And so what made a bank successful for the past 200 years um, is probably still largely relevant, but it's no longer sufficient in, in order to kind of compete in, in an increasingly digital age. So like Chase and other retail banks have known for years that the, the, the value and the purpose of having a large branch network is going to evolve. Now, I, I don't think anyone would be presumptuous enough to say that branches are irrelevant or have even gotten less relevant in the past year. Let's take away the past year. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But you know, Chase was building, I think, 500 or so new branches last year. And that's not because these are not smart people that don't see where the market's going. It's because branches are profitable and it drives customer acquisition and customer engagement. And it's a, it's a huge competitive advantage. Um, at the same time, no one can argue in good faith that a branch is going to be as necessary or relevant 10, 15, 20 years from now as it was in the past, by definition, because there's access to the same functionality online, which didn't exist um, in the past. And I think COVID has accelerated that transformation. People literally were shutting down branches and people weren't going into them. And so they had to do the same self-servicing and you know new product adoption online through the internet in the comfort of their own homes. And so there is this massive transformation coming. And I think the challenge is, as a large incumbent bank, you know, top five national banks, uh, I, I mean, it's classic innovator's dilemma. They have wonderful businesses. They have regulatory advantages once they've kind of crossed that chasm. They have massive network advantages. They have wildly profitable businesses. There's massive brand equity. You know, there's, there's faith in these institutions. And so there, there's not the kind of acute desire and need to change overnight because things are working. There's also, they're not technology companies by definition. And so the, you know, build fast and break things, or ship fast and break things mantra, or iterate, test, experiment, trial and error, technology forward, software development, it's just not the DNA of these institutions for reasonable and good reasons. And so change is very unlikely to come from one of the major incumbents in a massive way for all of these kind of like intrinsic reasons. At the same time, it's very, very hard, if not impossible, to transform financial services broadly as an outsider startup fintech for, for, for the kind of Congress reasons, right? I think there's Square, Stripe, these companies do amazing jobs. I think they're shipping wonderful products. Their growth speaks for itself. Um, but there's a long way to go before they're competing directly in a big way and on a broad scale. Um, across the entire suite of financial products with a Wells Fargo or a Chase or a Bank of America or a City, So it's hard to do it as an outsider. So it's this weird catch-22 where you can't do it as a bank. It's hard to do it as not a bank. And so what's the answer? And I, I think that's one of the key theses of the acquisition is that we're kind of a hybrid. You know, J.P. Morgan Chase has acquired WePay as an organization. We're now, by definition, a wholly owned subsidiary of the bank, so we're part of the bank. And yet, from at least a product and development perspective, we we operate semi-autonomously. So we've been able to use the same, you know, developer toolkit that we use, the same collaboration tools that we've used historically. Um, our leveling and hiring practices speak to the needs of, you know, a competitive landscape in Silicon Valley for top tier software developers. Um, and, and that's the hypothesis of the acquisition is that we can take what the bank has, which is scale, brand equity, a mature suite of financial products, you know, from, from, from capital to payments to depository products and 
the largest, if not one of the largest two-sided networks of payers and payees in the world. And we couple that with, you know, a technology forward innovators approach to, to shipping products um, and trying very intentionally to cannibalize and disrupt our existing business um, with, within the firm. And early signs, you know, two and a half years into it is that that's a model that we think is going to work. Plugging you into JP Morgan Chase, what got turbocharged? What didn't? Yeah, this, so, I mean, by definition, the scale of the portfolio that we serve um, is, is probably the biggest and most exciting for us. So pre-acquisition, WePay said, we're now an infrastructure company to software platforms that have their own acquisition channels, their own value proposition, their own portfolios of users and merchants. And we're going to go to those companies, let's use FreshBooks as an example, and say, hey, we're going to give you payment infrastructure that's going to power FreshBooks payments. And then you go out and you incorporate that into your accounting and invoicing tool, you know, go acquire customers, and we will get the benefit of, of, of that distribution that you have and that, and that volume that you have. And in that sense, they were always a channel partner to us. We never wanted to be in a situation where WePay was one of the three or four or five options that an end user can choose from when enabling payments on one of these platforms. Because if you're choosing between WePay and PayPal, or WePay and Bank of America Merchant Services, or WePay and Chase Merchant Services for that matter, no one's ever going to choose WePay because by definition, they don't have a pre-existing relationship with us because the only way they can get that relationship is through this partner. Uh, and they're not going to recognize the brand and certainly not with as much trust and confidence as they would for one of these established players. And so we were intentionally pulling ourselves further behind the scenes and you know, embedding ourselves in the fabric of one of these ISV platforms or software platforms that had their own distribution channels. Fast forward to acquisition by Chase, and we're like, we don't have a distribution problem. You know, we have half the households in America have an issue in relationship with Chase. I think it's like 10% of small businesses bank with Chase. I don't know the exact number. It's like four and a half, five million businesses. And so we have customers. The question is, how do we then use that base to drive demand to accept payments through us and these partners that have these value-add capabilities for particular merchant verticals, um, where we're now a distribution and acquisition channel for them, as opposed to them being an acquisition channel for us. So now we fly into the Chase brand. It's no longer, if you're a small business accepting payments through WePay's technology, you would never see WePay, you would see it as Chase. Um, and our goal is to, if you're a Chase banking client, we never want you to even think or have the temptation to look elsewhere to accept credit card payments. We want the ability to accept credit card payments to feel native to your existing Chase relationship. And so there's no, how quickly can we onboard you or get you started? Or, you know, am I gonna get a competitive price point or how good is the reporting? It's, look, you've already made the decision to bank with Chase. You now have the ability to accept payments through Chase. While at the same time, recognizing that we're never gonna build a restaurant point of sale system. We're never gonna build an e-commerce platform. We're never gonna build an invoicing solution uh, as robust as FreshBooks is. And so taking the customers that we already have and that we've you know, encouraged to accept payments through us and then pairing them with the right uh, software solution on the back end is, is kind of a huge game changer for us. It's no longer just selling infrastructure to third-party software companies and using them to get distribution. It's being the infrastructure within Chase that enables payments for an existing portfolio of merchants and the connective tissue that's able to then pass that on to these same software companies that are able to add more value on top of payments. So what are some of the cultural challenges that emerged being a part of Chase? 
we and Chase were very intentional during the acquisition process that the, you know, this was a marriage that was meant to be culturally. You know, I think it starts at the top. There's a reason why people know who Jamie Dimon is more than they know who the other CEOs of major banks are. You know, I think it's, it's, it's a firm that's been managed um, with integrity and sincerity and, and the right kind of conservatism in terms of like not willing to overextend or, or take, you know, unjustified risks. And it's one that invests billions and billions of dollars in technology with massive engineering teams that wants to own its own proprietary stack. Like that was the home that we were coming into. And so I'd say from that perspective, there's a shared vision of the way the world's evolving. There's a shared belief that technology is going to be the driving force there. There's a desire to recognize the need to play both offense and defense when we talk about this tra transformation agenda. And there's a belief that WePay has something special in our ability to innovate and ship products very quickly and, and the need to kind of protect that core of our culture. And so that's, that's worked out really well. I think what's been a challenge is that all of the real opportunities, you know, these one plus one equals three opportunities require a, a merging of assets that WePay brings to the table with assets that the firm brings, the broader firm brings to the table, which requires technical integration and collaboration across various lines of businesses and teams. And the reality is, by definition, a 400,000 person organization with a lot to lose works at a different pace and with more bureaucracy um, and more complexity than we do. And so we've had to find some way to interface uh, with that broader organization in a way that allows us to realize uh, these synergistic opportunities without fundamentally interfering with how we pay builds and ships products. And it's a, I mean, that, that is a daily challenge that we pay leadership team spends more and more of our time making sure that we're managing effectively at times playing that interface ourselves to shield our downstream teams from some of the impact of that. But that's the job and that's what we signed up for. And I think if we can manage to do that, you know, this will be one of the few success stories that are written uh, about you know, a major financial institution buying a small technology company and making it a successful acquisition. I think that 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 challenge that I just described is the single existential challenge that I think we're going to face. And I'm, I'm confident that the leadership across the board of JP Morgan understands that that's the existential question and has done everything in their power to make sure that we're going to end up on the right side of it. I mean, there was an early joke. I, I guess I'll give you two anecdotes. One is uh, WePay became known as the butterfly early on because there was some leader somewhere up the food chain that said, don't squash the butterfly, just don't squash the butterfly. And so they, you know, they handled us with, with white gloves uh, and, you know, really extended, I think, in, in a in, in very aggressive ways around the tools that we were allowed to use, you know, you know, where our infrastructure was hosted, things like that. And I think if we had to fundamentally change, we just crush, crush, crush our butterfly. Uh, one quick anecdote that I think is super funny is we were, you know, we were in the it's called seventh inning of the acquisition. So at this point, we had both been super far forward. We knew that we both wanted it. We were working on the agreement. We were still negotiating, you know, the final price. And I remember we were in, I think, our attorney's offices in San Francisco because it was like a neutral middle ground and no one wanted the home field advantage. And it was like principle to principle. So it was Bill uh, Clerico, my co-founder and CEO, talking directly to, um, the then CEO of Chase Works and Services. And, you know, we took a break. I ended up going to the bathroom and I was, you know, not to get too crass, but in, in a stall. 
and two of the Chase folks that worked for the CEO of Chase Merchant Services um, walked into the bathroom, didn't realize I was there. Uh, and I, I could hear one of them say to the other, great company, it's just a shame that we're gonna destroy it. <laughs> and I, uh, the reason why it's a happy ending is they were saying that out of genuine concern that if we weren't very careful in how we made the integration work, that we were not going to be able to realize the value of the acquisition and that there was something special that we paid that had to be protected in this broader environment. And those two people ended up coming over to WePay, not by being pushed by JP Morgan as like, you know, parachuting their people in, but being pulled by my co-founder and I being like, these guys get it. They understand the stakes and they understand what's going to make it work out right and what's going to make it work out wrong. One of them is now WePay COO uh, and the other one is WePay CFO. There are pockets, you know, it's, it's such a massive firm. They've got a billion, billions of dollars in, in technology budget and, you know, tens of thousands of, of technologists working every day. So it, it's not some monolithic entity where, you know, there's, you know, universal truths. There are some pockets that I think have innovated really well and some that have struggled. Uh, I can say the things that we're, we're bumping up against challenge-wise, I, I don't want to speak out of turn, but it's, uh, there's, a, there's a business case approach to getting funding and building products. And so it's like, it, you know, if you read Innovator's Dilemma, it's like exactly the two problems that you have to deal with, right? The first is um, value happens on an S-curve. And so, you know, you, you hammer away at a problem and, you know, as we pay Chase has this really big, exciting product announcement that's coming. I think it's going to be transformative in the industry. Um, there'll be headlines around it. Uh, and I can guarantee the initial adoption, you know, this isn't old school financial services where you launch a new credit card and it's just a sexier brand name, a massive marketing campaign, you know, better rewards, and you're now the market leader. Like <laughs> Chase did that, they did that really well. Software, it's like, the, the launch of the thing is not the is not the end. It's it's literally the starting point to start iterating on an, on this product. And so, you know, I can almost guarantee when we launch this new thing, it is not going to achieve the kind of growth and revenue expectations that everyone's hoping for. And for me, that's not a sign that therefore this whole agenda is, is screwed. It's yeah, like now we like let's go look at the funnel and let's hammer away at all these you know at all these points in the funnel until we make it work. That's like building product and, and, and shipping software. And so like the first is when you're early in that S curve in a larger organization, you, you don't have the same patience to kind of get to that point of inflection where you start driving the, the, the real value. But that's what you need to do in software, right? So that's the first. The second part of the innovator's dilemma is that a billion dollar market is not particularly exciting for JP Morgan Chase. It's like anything you want to do and anything you want to get real resources to pursue, you need to be able to build a business case that is a massive, massive market opportunity. But what we've seen with all the successful software kinds of technology companies that I look at is they never start with a, maybe they do in their, in their fundraising deck, but the, the initial solution is always niche. It's, it's narrow and deep, right? It's not broad and, and shallow. And so I remember in the early days, it was like, Oh, Square's only going after micro-merchants, right? The minute that they get big enough and care about pricing, they're going to migrate, you know, they're, they're going to use a real acquirer. It's like, no, Square will eventually realize, you know, they're going to start there and then they will build more product to make sure that they can support a merchant throughout its entire life cycle. 
maybe they're not there yet, but like they know that they need to get there. Or they'll say, oh, Stripe's margins are super thin um, because all it does is pay, payment processing. And you know what do, what do big companies really care about an easy integration if it's only a one-time expense? What they really care about is like full feature robustness and like, you know. and it's like, I, it's, it's that mentality that, oh, those guys are nothing or that market is nothing or we don't need to worry about it. That's scary because the reality is like, that's where you should start is you want to go super narrow and super deep and then you can always build, build broader value thereafter. I think in a big firm, you know, the most valuable bank in the world, uh, certainly in the US, uh, it's, it's hard to find a starting point because the starting point by definition is never going to be big enough. What advice do you have for executives or uh, managers or leaders within other big organizations on how to best drive innovation and work with people in the tech sector? I guess I'm as good of an authority as, as any on that question, given the fact that we're three years into an acquisition by, by a big bank. But I, I don't consider myself an authority because we haven't proven that it's going to work yet. I'm optimistic. I think we're doing the right things. I spoke about some of them earlier. You know, you, you've got to both be integrated in ways that make sense and allow you to realize those one plus one equals three opportunities, but you still need to build a moat around a culture of innovation and particularly the way we build product and the way we ship software. You know, our release cadence is different. Our testing cadence is different. Our developer tools are different. You know, where we host and how we host is different. The third-party services that we use for testing and for monitoring and alerting and, you know, like it, it, it's fundamentally different than what, what the firm's doing. And I think the firm's coming in our direction, which, which is good, but that's gotta be protected. And I think if I'm speaking specifically around advice for an acquisition, that's probably what it would be. It would be go slowly and cautiously be absolutely clinical and surgical about where you choose to integrate and where you don't and decide what it is that you're acquiring. If you're acquiring a piece of technology, which in and of itself is valuable and you just need to kind of drop that into your, into the mothership, that's a very, very different narrative than buying a technology and a team that has to and needs to continue to iterate and innovate and ship products very quickly, in which case you've got to kind of protect it a little bit more. I think there's a lot of examples like uh, you know, where, where did we get? It's like Capital One made a massive bet on innovation. They had this innovation team and, and this, you know, this innovation group. I think they had an office in downtown Palo Alto and they hired really smart people. I thought they went about it the right way. And it just kind of withered on the vine. You know, you look at BBVA, Acquire Simple, they have their kind of open API down marketplace um, agenda, which seemed like they hired the right people, acquired the right company, had the right strategy. Um, and now, you know, maybe it's COVID related, but now they're, they're kind of winding that down a little bit and, and, and not investing in it as much as they were before. So I honestly don't know. There's not a lot of examples of success stories, right? Like I brought up two Capital One, which I thought was doing it right and seemed to have not really gotten off the ground. BBVA seemed like they were doing it right, not really getting off the ground. Um, so I don't know. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough road to help for sure. There's no other option. You got to do it. I can't tell you how many conversations I have a week with leadership within JP Morgan Chase, authentically interested in what we think is working and not working as a way to kind of evolve the playbook for how to make an acquisition successful. So I think it's that like self-reflection, self-criticism, desire to change and to learn um, mixed with the appetite to acquire innovative companies that it is gonna be JP Morgan's recipe for success. And whether that's applicable to other major banks, um, I don't know, but I think that's that seems to be JP Morgan's strategy and it seems to be working so far. Got it. And in one word, what advice would you have for an entrepreneur? One word. Oh God. I don't know if you or your audience is familiar with Paul Graham, but you know, Y Combinator was you know, him and Jessica and, and their team's brainchild. 
Uh, he's also an essayist, a great essayist, and he spent a lot of time thinking about that. What one word best describes a successful entrepreneur? The best he could do is two words. Okay, I'll give you two. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I don't think I can improve on it, so I'm just going to steal it. Uh, relentlessly resourceful. Love it. Right? It's like that, that's what separates the, the, the successful entrepreneurs from, from, from the not. It's like, are you just relentlessly <laughs> resourceful? Amazing. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. Dan, always a pleasure to catch up. Amazing. Take care. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. In cultures of innovation, you can't be overly prescriptive on saying this is exactly how it's going to be and, and very top-down driven. You have to allow small teams of brilliant people to come together and you try and move as much of the bureaucracy and things out of the way as possible and let them operate. General partner at Google's Capital G, Layla Sturdy. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.